Hey, oh, this hello. Is, uh, hey, this is Sam. I'm, I'm here with Julian. Uh, we're laughing because our first attempt uh, to start this conversation failed because of some problems with my VPN. Uh, but Julian, if you don't mind, could you uh, introduce yourself and then we can sort of leap back into yeah. our conversation. Yeah, let's let's try this again. I, I thought my first introduction went went well, so I thought so too. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm um, I'm Julian. Maybe you guys have probably most of you guys watching this have probably seen me around. I've been on Vanderclay a few times. I've been um, active on Randos. Uh, you can find me in Discord. Um, and I'm a, I'm a I'm a Hutterite from Manitoba, Canada. That that um that terribly cold place in the world. Yeah, this even time of colder year. than Chicago. It is. But what? Today is a warm day here. I think it's, yeah. it's only minus five or something. So. Nah, today <laughs> we we were just above freezing here. <laughs> <laughs> but yesterday was was absolutely terrible. Like yeah. yeah. So. But um, Sam and I are connecting because I've been doing some reading on the Trinity and. Um, Sam has his own reasons for being interested in the Trinity. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a bit of an interesting story how I how I um how how I've um, started to read up on the Trinity. Um, there's a friend of mine who has this degree in in theology, and he wanted to brush up on his Trinitarian on his Trinitarianism, and so he essentially told me to be his brain farm, and he. He gave me a, a whole bunch of books to read, and so now I'm I I have the perk of being able to learn about the Trinity and getting some free books, and yeah. I'm just keeping my friend updated on the, at the same time. So well, it's a also a, a great way of of sort of um also being able to communicate what I'm learning, so so that I don't just you know read the books and um so that way the, the because I have to communicate it, I I am able to get a better sense of, of what's going on and get it better ingrained in my mind. So sure. it's really helpful. Sure. And you had mentioned that in, in Hutterite communities growing up, you don't learn a ton of doctrine, but the more the emphasis is much more on, on right practice and that you mm -hmm. felt like, you know, the, the Trinity was around in the background of, of growing up and it got mentioned sometimes, but it was never too strongly, explicitly taught or explained or, or yeah. laid out, but it was it was more important uh, to to learn like how to follow Jesus and how to how to act. Yep. And I I don't think we're we're too unique in that. I think right. that's the case for most. Yeah, um, yeah. I think churches. I think most American Protestants don't learn very much explicitly about the Trinity. It's sort of floating there in the background. Um, and gets talked about sometimes, but often not very detailed in its explanation. Mm -hmm. So um, right, yeah, before we, right before we disconnected, you were telling me a story about a, a Unitarian who joined, who was trying to join yeah. the right community <laughs> and what was going yeah. on with that. Yeah, I, I got reminded of this story when I was listening to you and and Paul Vanderclay's recent conversation. But um, this was this is told to me by a by Hutterite historian. You know, in, I think this was in the 16th, uh, 15th century or so. I don't know quite. I don't quite know, but um, there was there was someone trying to join the these proto or early Hutterite communities, and 
um, it turns out this guy is a Unitarian or he doesn't believe in the Trinity. So there's sort of this internal debate that starts out um, within the people in the community, like to let this guy join and get baptized. He doesn't, um, he, he really, he, he sort of holds to all the, the right, how to write distinctives, right? He's a pacifist. He likes our idea of community of goods. Um, he's on board with, um, um, with, uh, He's sort of opposed to infant baptism. He's got all the right stuff going for him. So, so do we let this guy join? And um, they ended up letting the guy join the community. Um, and I think getting baptized. But, but, but as my friend was telling the story, he says, uh, so, they, so this was told in the Hutterite Chronicle, and that the guy who, um, who sort of recorded the Chronicle then sort of added, um, but it turned out that this guy um, was unfaithful and ended up sort of um, <laughs> leaving the church or, or doing something like that. So I was, I was just sort of thinking of, uh, you know, your conversation on, on Alistair McGrath and his definition of heresy. And it just made me the, the idea that sort of wrong beliefs lead to wrong practices. And, and that's sort of what got the, what got the community um, sort of outraged at this guy was not, not so much that he um, wasn't a Trinitarian, though, of course, they were skeptical about that, but um, they ended up, um, he ended up falling under the church because of, of some stuff he did. I don't know what, what the details were there, but, but it was interesting, this, this sort of, uh, you know, he, as this guy was telling this story, he had, at, at the end, he had this little sentence where he said, oh, but it, it turned out not to be faithful anyway. So it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on on the train home from work today, I listened to Ryan Reeves. Uh, do you know who Ryan Reeves is? He has a YouTube channel about church history. I saw that on the Discord. Yeah, yeah. He he's a. Uh, I like his his YouTube channel a lot for the most part. And he had a video entitled "What Unitarians, Anabaptists, and Quakers, or something like that." I think it was and, Baptists, but yeah. Yes. Yes. And and so so. I mean, I had known some of this before, but that video reminded me that 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 Hutterites, Anabaptists, and Unitarians have some deep history in common. In okay, that we, yeah. we were both considered the radical end of the Reformation, um, okay. right? The, the and by normal Protestants, the Protestants who had gone too far. <laughs> and, um, you, you know, like the, the mainstream Protestants, like the Calvinists, are like, oh, but but we're not like those radical reformation those yeah, people yeah. sharing all their goods in common and not believing in the trinity those they they, they took our ideas <laughs> to the extreme that's not us um yeah that's and, hilarious and so i i thought that that was interesting that you and i are in some sense uh still living descendants of the the radical end of the reformation even yeah, though yeah. uh that that meant pretty different things you're your branch was more radical in its practice and my branch is more radical in its uh, theology. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, th I think that the, the Hutterites, um, like many of the, I think many of the early Anabaptists were just all over the place with everything. Like um, there were sort of yeah. um, pacifists and non-pacifists and Trinitarians and non-Trinitarians and it, it was just a brutal mixed bag. But I think the, right, yeah. the, the early Hutterites were actually pretty Orthodox in their beliefs, but um, mm -hmm. but it just wasn't as emphasized. It wasn't, um, and it wasn't like we ever sort of developed any kind of systematic theology. Um, th probably because, partly because we've never really um, 
you know, a lot of the hotter history is just them sort of running around trying not to get killed. So yeah. it's only right. been a few hundred years. Too. <laughs> yeah. Unitarians also had to trot all over the globe to figure out where they wouldn't get killed. And I think yeah. both of us Nobody figured out us. North America was probably the right place to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. It is funny. Um, and, and yeah, that, that video also talked about like one of the connections was primitivism, which, which Ryan Reeves defined as, you know, wanting to be like the early oh, yeah. church, right? Like sort of the early oh, church got it yeah. right and we need to look back to them and that traditions that develop contrary to the early church are to be viewed with suspicion, right? And so, mm -hmm. um, and I would say I know among, among the biblical Unitarians I'm with, in touch with, a fair amount of them gravitate towards pacifism for that similar sort of reason. Okay. Um, it's not uncommon. It's not generally central to the self-identity of biblical Unitarians, but it, you see a lot more of it, I would say, among them than among regular evangelicals. Um, although I haven't I seen any of them start to share their goods in common. <laughs> yeah, there's not too many of those. Um, I suppose absolutely key. I, I would guess this is one of the most foundational beliefs for the for most Unitarians would be um, sola scriptura. I, yes. I, I would guess that would have to be um, pretty much at the core of what they uh, at the core. I would suppose. Right, right. It's even more core than the Unitarianism itself. Yeah. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, you. I mean, could you be a? Yeah, you couldn't really be a Unitarian if you weren't sola scriptura. Could well, you? what's interesting is that most people who have heard of Unitarians have heard of Unitarian Universalists, which is sort of like the most liberal and progressive denomination that there is. And they have, I think, long since abandoned the Bible as an authority in any way whatsoever. So hmm. there, were, there were some Unitarians. I, I would say there was, there was like two motivations for Unitarianism early on. One was sola scripture and like, hey, I don't think this is in the, this Trinity thing's in the Bible. Yep. Maybe, maybe it was sense. teaching something else. And then there was sort of the more rationalist enlightenment sort of version which started to not believe in miracles pretty okay, quickly yeah. and stuff like that. And then pretty much like, well, Jesus is just a teacher, right? Mm -hmm. And so therefore he's not the incarnation of the you know, oh, yeah. God or something. And so God is just one thing up there and Jesus isn't that. And so those two things were kind of together early on, although you can see Unitarians kind of leaning one direction or the other. Like, I like, think, um, yeah, that makes sense because um, I think in in sort of the early, you know, the sort of liberal theology that started to develop in Germany, one of the one of the doctrines that was early on to go was actually the Trinity because right. it just it was just such a weird thing. Like, why do we have to have three persons? And so I'm not sure which theologian this was. Was it? Um, I don't think it was Schleiermacher, Boltmann. One of them had sort of the Trinity as sort of this appendix to his yeah, systematic theology all the way at the yeah. end. Yeah. And then, and then you know, Barth comes along and he puts it right at the beginning again. And right, that sort of, right. Just sort of the, the New Orthodox push against it. Yeah. Right. Interesting stuff.
Because people like um, John Locke and Thomas Jefferson and them were Unitarians, but they were very much seemingly motivated out of that second sort of camp, the, the rationalistic, we don't need these superstitious old Catholic stuff anymore. You know, we are smart mm -hmm. enough to outthink that, and the Trinity was on that list of things. Whereas there always was sort of a contingent of the, the Unitarians who were like, no, we, we still believe in the Bible, we still believe in miracles, and we still believe that Jesus is the Messiah in some sense, but we just don't think the Bible teaches the Trinitarian understanding of this. Yeah, yeah. So, so and although that, that second camp, which I would say I belong to, is certainly the minority of Unitarians and Unitarians themselves okay. are minorities, so the minority within the minority. But the strange thing is, is that we look pretty similar to evangelicals nowadays, except for this <laughs> uh, this this main uh, doctrine. So I guess um, what so what books um, did you read in this sort of uh, deep venture into the Trinity with your friends, and, and what's that been making you think about? I've only read two books so far. Um, the first one I read, which, which I really enjoyed, was um, Michael Reeves' Delighting in the Trinity, which was a, a short little book. Um, and uh, what do I say about that one? Yeah, that's the first one I read. <laughs> and then the second one I read most recently was Fred Sanders' um, The Deep Things of God, um, which was a bit of a, a more stuffy read. I didn't particularly enjoy it but i i did learn a lot from it so you 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 mentioned you started that book but he didn't finish it i wonder what yeah. <laughs> why that was <laughs> so part of and my also, I, I, just a sec he also said you you once had this argument with her, uh, this um this conversation with fred sanders i'd love to hear about how that went as well yeah. because sure so part of did those my... two things overlap Right. So if, if you've seen the first conversation that I had with Vander Clay, I tell the story about my excommunication yeah. that happened just le still less than a year ago, where I had been oh, going man. to a regular evangelical Trinitarian Bible sort of church and, you know, had been there for a year, was on what is in a Bible say, and then I wanted to join the worship band. And then that led to me having to talk to the pastor about my beliefs. And that led to you know, my non-Trinitarianism being an issue. So while that was happening, lo and behold, we had a guest person come in and preach a three-sermon series at our church, and that person was Fred Sanders. Is and that a coincidence, or, or did they know they had Unitarians in their midst? I think it was a coincidence, although whether okay. it was a coincidence in God's providence, uh, who knows. Um, <laughs> so... So after they decide to excommunicate me, I have one more meeting with the pastor where I was like kind of wanting to dispute this. And so his um, roommate from seminary was Fred Sanders, or if not a roommate, at least a good friend. And so Fred Sanders, okay. I think normally lives in California, but he was in Illinois for that semester because he was doing some sort of I don't know, adjunct professorship or some, I don't know, something at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, which is in the Chicago area. And so he was in my neck of the woods. So he gets called. So it's, it's the pastor, Fred Sanders and me, and I'm trying to basically <laughs> appeal my excommunication 
and the expert witness called against me is none other than Fred Sanders. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, so, that's heavy hitting. So we met at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is an ironic place to have this discussion. Um, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School is sort of like the main or maybe the flagship divinity school for evangelical uh, pastors. Um, and of course, it's named Trinity. When I told my dad that that was going to happen, he's like, well, that sounds like an away game, not a home game uh, to have that discussion. Um, so it was only about an hour. And my main goal was to be like, so Fred, there's the doctrine of the Trinity, and there isn't a hope and a prayer that I'm going to change your mind on that in, in this meeting with you face to face. Um, but why do you think that this is an essential doctrine in order to be saved or to be considered a member of the church? Because it's one thing to say that a doctrine is true, but it's a next it's a, an extra another thing to say that it's required and that it's required for salvation and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. how do you how do you how do you think about you, Fred Sanders, it being deserving of that extra status, right? And to be honest, this discussion was a little bit more it, it devolved into more of a debate than a discussion than I would have liked. Um, but I will have to say considering that it kind of turned into more of a debate than a good-natured discussion, considering it was me, some random layperson, versus the expert on the Trinity in all of American evangelicalism, I would say yeah, I didn't much. get destroyed, which, and I thought I brought <laughs> up some pretty good points to him and made him think a little bit, and was surprised that he didn't just, like, blow me over or something like that. I don't mean to toot my own horn too much, but um, but then after an hour, it was like, oh, I've got to go pick up my kids from soccer practice or whatever, and then he just kind of left, and that was it, and I was still excommunicated. So, so that was my that was my interaction with Fred, and I wouldn't say it was a very positive one, um, and <laughs> I'm not sure how much he really cared for hearing what I had to say. But uh, so that was my <laughs> So oh, I, yeah. I read, or I didn't read all of it. I read two thirds of Deep Things of God in preparation for that meeting with him, as well as listening to a lot of his YouTube videos and stuff like that to understand where he's coming from and to get a sense of what sort of person he was. So, um, I mean, just reading the Deep Things of God, it doesn't sound like the type of person who would be fun to debate with because, <laughs> because he seems like a very um i don't know he just seemed like a very self-certain type of person or mm -hmm. something if you know what i don't know did you get the sense from reading the book um, i got the sense from reading the book and from interacting with him in person yeah that he was quite uh, smugly content in his ideas and viewed himself as somewhat superior to the average uh i don't know lay person yeah in the people yeah, yeah. And it, that was it, a little off-putting, if I'm honest. Yeah, that was that was one thing that sort of put me off in the book was, uh, you know, just just sort of many, a lot of the the sort of one-line dismissals he had of of different, you know, just when he when he has this one-line dismissal of Coward Barth or or whatever, 
I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I suppose evangelicals aren't aren't too big of fan uh, have their quarrels with Karl Barth, but um, like at, at one point he quotes this um, this guy who said um, who says um, who says uh, Pack. Do you know a Packer? Who's the, who's um, apparently a reformed theologian or something? Gee, something Packer. But it, but it, they were talking about Packer's um, views in scripture, and he said, and this this guy says, um, you know, Packer has all that Karl Barth ever dreamed of, without dismissing the orthodox view of scripture. And I'm like, you know, that's just not a very this is just a stupid thing to say because for one, Karl Barth, like who is this other guy in, uh, and, and you're comparing him to Karl Barth, um, not to mention the fact that Karl Barth is coming from the middle of German liberalism and is just um, charting a new course in the midst of, of, of that whole stream of thinking, standing up to the Third Reich. It's like... Um, that's just that's just it's just unfair to to dismiss him like that so yeah it, it was sort of i, I found a, a few of, of those types of, of things that sort of annoyed me and i would say that the whole tone was sort of um just just sort of narrow in some way it just felt like there wasn't a whole lot of room to breathe in in his um in his in his way of thinking about the trinity i don't know Sure. Uh, so, yeah, that could partly be just my temperament also. So to kind of, I don't know, to, to sort of make one of his points for him and then maybe talk against it a little bit. Like his big thing is, is it seems like, it also seemed like he was writing it for both regular evangelicals and for his non-evangelical theologian peers, right? Those, those seem to be like his two audiences. Okay. And for the non evangelical theologian peers it seems like you could almost read in between the lines that he gets criticized that evangelicals aren't very trinitarian right and yeah that sort of relates I, to what we were saying earlier that a lot of american protestants don't grow up being taught very much about the Trinity. um and so but he's like actually because evangelicals act out their faith better than you other non-evangelical people yeah, out there yeah actually more trinitarian because we acted out and the gospel's trinitarian and so if you're acting out the gospel then you're trinitarian and so take that yeah um yeah and that i was just annoyed also by the whole but by just how evangelical the book was like yeah, at, the, at yeah. the beginning he says you know evangelicals emphasize um the cross conversion um personal relationship and heaven and then he mm-hmm. says um, you know, it's completely right to to emphasize those four things <laughs> because that's the essence of Christianity. <laughs> um, yeah, and then he just he just quotes all of these these evangelical thinkers, all of these pietists, and boy, pietists are not my cup of tea. I just don't <laughs> enjoy reading them at all. It's like it's like um, the, the, every sentence they write is sort of filled with this sense of how amazing and grand and awesome God is, but it's always it always seems to me like it has sort of um, a gun pointed at your head at the same time, where it's like if you don't find this amazing, you're not a real Christian. That's how that's sort of how how the pietists yeah. come across to me. Do you, do you get that sense? It's like 
um, you must find this amazing the way I'm describing it, or you don't have this proper relationship with Jesus. And right. yeah, th- whatever. Yeah, um, you you need to be happy and enlightened like me, or else yeah. faith must not be working inside you. And that oh yeah, that's exactly. a hard time dealing with. You know, what if you have periods of spiritual drought or or doubts or or things like that? And, oh, for sure. and how does that connect? Because most Christians will experience stuff like that at points in their lives. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting. Like you, me, and Paul Vanderclay are all sort of like on the periphery of evangelicalism, right? Like we can see evangelicalism and understand it, and sometimes we maybe even like participate in it. But by certain things, by certain standards, by certain definitions, we're not exactly evangelical itself, right? I um I do tend to think. At least, at least the language Hutterites use isn't isn't evangelical at all, right? right. The 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 very pietistic language uh, way of expressing their faith that evangelical evangelicals have is very foreign to to most Hutterites. Um, so, you know, if if you, you you sort of have this language of being born again, having a personal relationship. Um, uh, and all of all of the kind of things that come along with that that's that's sort of not how Hutterites that's just not the language Hutterites use to express their faith and sure. what is the there's language often, Hutterites use? <laughs> oh it, it's 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 a lot more of this um I guess we'd have our sort of our own traditional categories uh, like we'd use German words to some degree um yeah, it's it's a bit of an interesting in-house thing, where you have Hutterites who've been exposed more to to evangelical authors, evangelical thinkers, and they'll start to adopt this kind of language, and they'll say, you know, I've, I have this personal relationship, and then it'll sort of butt heads with the with the sort of um, traditional Hutterites who sort of have this different language. So that's an interesting dynamic. I don't know. Does, yeah. does that does that ring true to any? Any any sort of uh, church yeah. experience you have, or yeah, and I, my my church was probably closer to evangelicalism and more directly influenced by it than than yours, and that we we were all we were all about personal relationships with Jesus. That was just that honky dory. That that was the idea. Can I, but can I interrupt? Yeah. Like here's 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 one thing that'll that'll explain this in a really funny way for for a lot of. So, so in Reformed circles, the cardinal sin is um, works righteousness, right. Right? right? In in Anabaptist Hutterite circles, the cardinal sin is is the reverse of that. It's it's um it's it's, it's being once saved, always saved, and assuming you don't have to do anything, uh, you don't have to um you don't have taking, to follow taking Jesus. your salvation for granted or something like that exactly that's yes. the that's the cardinal sin for traditional water rights so it's right. like you'll have it's it's absolutely hilarious that you'll have um you know i don't know reformed or evangelical circles going on and on about works righteousness and at the same time in our circles there's the literal opposite sort of <laughs> cardinal sin that's being emphasized yeah. that is so, funny that's the cardinal sin of my my group would be not being biblical, right? Oh, that's not a biblical idea. Oh, yeah. That's not a biblical teaching. Where? <laughs> what first are you getting that idea from, right? That that yeah, is our yeah. cardinal sin. 
Yeah, yeah. There's some of that, but I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's quite to the extreme you see in other traditions for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny. You can tell what a group cares about by what their cardinal sin is. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. That's true. Yeah, it's like you know, for for the reformed or the average. I don't. I don't know. I don't know these traditions too well, but it's something like grace is what's essential. Yeah. Um, for different, it's for different traditions. It's all about the Bible and for. For Anabaptists, it's all about following Jesus. You know, I wonder what the Catholic cardinal sin is. <laughs> well, they actually have a list of them, don't they? I think. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I don't know all of them, that, but that, they, they've enumerated exactly what the cardinal sins are. <laughs> uh, um, um, but their actions, right? I, I suppose that that's what's different about what Catholicism like divorce, I think. I correct me at Catholics if I'm wrong, but that would be one of the cardinal sins and a couple other things like that. And then you have to go through some extra amount of penance or whatever to, to get rid to get back in, in right uh relationship with the church and God if you've committed a cardinal sin. So Yeah, yeah. It's it's a uh, it's a complicated um even divorce in Catholic circles is also a complicated topic with um, types of stuff that's going on with Pope Francis. Um, he wants to move towards, um, under, circum under certain circumstances, readmitting divorce and remarried Catholics into community. That's just started a bit of a debate among conservative and liberal, whatever yeah. the categories yeah. you want. So, yeah, yeah. they've got you their own in-house. You see the, the Catholics on the Discord server uh, uh, discussing those sorts of things. So let's see here. I guess kind of picking back the thread up with, with Fred Sanders. I, so like, I would have a, a good, good uh, jumping off point for the, for the Sanders book if, 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 um, for if you don't have anything else. But um, go for it. I think one, one interesting aspect, and this is probably close to the central part of his book is his discussion of um, act knowing. And I think that's, that's what allows him to make the claim that evangelicals are the most Trinitarian ever. Like yes. he, he doesn't pull his punches. He says they're most, the most Trinitarian. Um, yeah. So, so go into more in detail about history. what, about what you think he means by tacit belief. Oh, tacit. Okay. So he gets this from Michael Pollyanni and essentially what he's getting at is, okay, you can probably, it's, it's just the, you use the word presuppositions. That's almost what he's getting at, but it's, it's sort of, I would guess, I think it's a level before presuppositions. It's sort of the, 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 the precognitive, um, stance you have which then allows you to know which beliefs you're supposed to hold so think about um you had you actually articulated this well in your conversation with paul when you said you know the unitarians have one way of reading scripture and the other you know the trinitarians have another way and it all all comes down to presuppositions and i think that that's about what he's saying but I, I wouldn't use the word presuppositions i'd say the the trinitarians have a different framework they have a different um lenses it's almost right but they have a different way of attending 
to scripture. Um, and they're, they're just coming at it with it with this different they've been formed in a different way so that different things pop out to them so just think about how all of the christian different you know we were just talking about the differences between evangelicals and anabaptists and reformed or what have you just the way we've been formed in our culture in our liturgy in um, the conversations we have this sort of creates this underlying structure this tact um, way of attending framework lenses whatever you want to use pre-cognitive pre, not exactly a belief but this just then makes you put the world together in a certain way and so i, I think what, what what sanders is claiming is is that evangelicals um sort of presuppose the trinity in in the things they emphasize. So they emphasize in his, he says they emphasize, you know, personal scripture reading, conversion, personal relationship with Jesus. Um, there was one other one, I think. Oh, and personal prayer. And, he, and his whole argument in the book is that all of these are, um, sort of only make sense from a Trinitarian perspective and sort of presuppose the Trinity. Um, right. I don't know if, yeah, so. So it's sort of like, like in, like in Jordan Peterson's speak, you know, you believe what it, you, you act out what you believe and what you believe is what's sort of, you know, um, informed by your actions, sort of like this idea that there, there are beliefs that you could maybe even not know at the level of oh, yeah, yeah. proposition, there's, but it's deeper down this, in you. There's this quote from Pollyani that that where he says, "You you always know, you always believe more than you know." Right, right. And Jordan Peterson will say almost the exact same thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so. And, so, and there's another. Can I emphasize one more thing? Um, Pollyani also says we need to get rid of this idea that we can just. This is essentially what's behind the debate between Peterson and Harris, right? need to get rid of the idea that we could just approach the world objectively and sort of gather the data we need. Right. What Pollyanna says is we need to recognize that we have these prior faith commitments, these prior beliefs, which come before our, um, our coming to the world. And, I, and, and even something like science, right? We think science is just me objectively looking at the world, but what's actually going on, and this isn't really to diminish science in any way, it's just, this is just the way it is, is what a scientist is, is a trained person who's been trained to attend to the world in a certain way, to have these practices. In other words, to come to the world with these um, ways of attending and with these, um, with these, with these um, beliefs which then make him see the world in the way science wants to see the world and right. to come to get the benefits that that, that that brings with it. Right, and so I think this is super related to the topic of the Trinity because I think that, I, I think too many people think that you can go to the Bible and read it and all of its teachings are obvious. Um, and that one thing that I've experienced, like, you know, because I've had a lot of 
ranging from discussions to talks to debates about the Trinity and especially about, uh, you know, scriptural ev evidence, yea or nay, for the Trinity. And it yeah. never ceases to amaze me what seems obvious to some people is completely not obvious to others and vice versa. Right, like I've had so many times where I'll bring up a Bible verse. I'm like, look, this clearly shows that the Trinity is not random. Like, what? I, what do you mean? I just understand the Bible verse this way, and then they'll do the same thing yeah. to me. Like, you know, therefore you should go and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Boom, the Trinity. I'm like, it doesn't mention the Trinity anywhere in there. It doesn't say what substance they're made out of or any of those sorts. And it's it's amazing, you know, how much like how much people bring to the text that is shaping the way that they understand it. And I think that a lot of this debate between Unitarians and Trinitarians is um, hard to flesh out because a lot of it is at the level of these presuppositions and interpretation rules and ideas and mechanisms that mm -hmm. shape how you read the Bible itself. And so when each side is going at each other, I'm more biblical than you are, I'm more biblical than you are, they're not even like speaking the same definition of biblical really is really part of the weird thing because their presuppositions and their reading you know, habits and their interpretive mechanism cause them to see different things even though they're both trying to trust in the Bible for what it is that they should read from their interpretive mechanism. Right. So you're almost saying the whole argument over whether something is biblical or not is 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 almost a futile debate because <laughs> I'm not I don't mean to go that far. Like there's something yeah, like yeah. I still think the Bible's teaching something. And also if like you and I were to have the same interpretive lens, then theoretically we could have a good discussion and then come to an agreement about what it's saying. Although how much two people can ever share that is difficult. But I think that, like within a tradition, right? Like you've been shaped in Hutterite um, communities and I've been shaped in my own communities. Like within a community, people learn the same habits of how to interpret the Bible. And so it's easier for them to come to an agreement, right? Because not only are they seeing the Bible the same way, but then they can talk about it the same way and make arguments about what it's saying and what it isn't. So I, I don't mean to just devolve into pure subjectivity and relativism or something. I think it is a bit of a, a bit yeah. too quick of a leap to say to go from. You know, I've noticed a lot of in you know on this channel we talk a lot about you know sola scriptura and um, should we really all be Catholics and this type of thing. And I think it it sort of um, it's too often an abstract problem right yeah. where where we'll say you know you can look at all of these different people coming to these different conclusions doesn't that mean the bible doesn't clearly teach this or that um and i i wonder if if we actually went into the weeds on specific topics if um yeah if if things would be would be a bit, I, I just think that the jump to, you know, solo scriptura is just stupid, is maybe a bit too too quick of a leap to make. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but then again, I guess the whole issue of biblical interpretation is also tied up with all kinds of other questions. Um, 
right? So let's say you can reach the proper conclusion about what the Bible is saying. Um, you know, how does that translate into our current context today? And mm. there, there's all kinds of questions that have to be answered between me getting the right interpretation um, and then me applying it in my everyday. I think there's still some other some other questions you have to at least get an opinion on before. Right, because you could be a secular scholar like Bart Ehrman, who's mm-hmm. equally concerned about trying to understand what it is that the Bible said, right? Yeah. But he's not trying to apply it in his life the same way an evangelical Bible scholar is trying to, right? Or the way a, a lay person reading the Bible for themselves is. And, and think about um, what your view is about what the Bible is, right? Um, mm-hmm. We can go into the Old Testament and find out exactly what Chronicles is teaching us, but does that mean it has any um, any claim to 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 guide our moral decisions today right you have to figure out is the bible you know is it a narrative is it um is it god is every word um sort of directly is, is it sort of this flat plane that i can just take a verse from here and then directly apply it or you know there's all kinds of different different views right. here yeah. Right. Or, or is the, the way the first century church uh, behaved in the book of Acts something that we're supposed to emulate? Or is that something exactly. that's just in there for descriptive purposes, right? Yeah. And, and that's and where, where you and I are on, or, or our traditions are on the same <laughs> side of, that is telling us what we're supposed to do. And, and other Protestants <laughs> are like, no, that's just saying what they did do, right? Yeah, yeah. And how do you decide that dispute? Right. And another another question I also keep coming back to is, if you look at the way the early church is engaging with the culture, um, you know, if you think about it, someone like the Apostle Paul, drawing on Greek philosophy and Jewish, um, you know, Jewish categories, and you know, talking to all kinds of people, you know, you you have to ask. So what does that say about how Christians are supposed to engage with, you know, contemporary philosophy, contemporary mm-hmm. concerns? And this raises a second question of, is how the early church engages with culture sort of normative for how we engage with culture, right? Are we supposed to, um, you know, have this, this very antagonistic view, you know, it's, it's us in the world, you know, this is obviously very um, sort of the position Hutterites have taken. It's sort of, you know, there's there's this clear delineation between the church and the world. But yeah, how uh, are, is each era supposed to have its own um, engagement with culture or sure, sure, yeah. these first century ways of engaging? Yeah, sure. I can imagine how that's a much more important and pressing question for for you. I suppose I'm not sure we kind of it is, but even talked about it, but not not like a ton. Isn't that also though a, a sort of a mainstream evangelical concern too? Yeah, in yeah, a way? I guess so. Like going to movies, we're like you know, certain, yeah. you know, or like you're you you aren't really supposed to engage with those philosophers or or this type. Right. You know, right. Christians all always have this tension between. Um, 
you know, the world in, in Christian. Yeah, it's, it's obviously a lot more extreme with, with a group like the Hutterites, but yeah. Right, like a big, a big thread of um, biblical Unitarianism is that it is skeptical of the influence of Greek philosophy in the early church, right? Okay. Like we, we would, you know, a, a quick simplistic version of the narrative is like, Christianity started out as Jewish, and those Jews were Unitarians, and the Jews didn't think that Jesus was God. And then it got mixed up with uh, Greek philosophy, especially Neoplatonism, in places like Alexandria and Turkey and Constantinople and stuff huh. like that. And that the Trinity is sort of like this unholy marriage of, of Neoplatonic Greek philosophy and, okay. um, and biblical teaching, and that it got away from the early church and what, what the apostles believed because it got too in bed with worldly philosophies and ideas and stuff like that. And one can certainly hmm. show that there's a lot of historical truth to the fact that the Trinity is very informed by Neoplatonic categories and stuff like that. But one could say, well, that was a good thing, right? Al Alistair McGrath in his book that I read, he fully acknowledges that. And then he's like, but yeah, and that's what it had to do to engage with the culture and to communicate to the educated, learned people of the time. And Greek philosophy has a lot of good things in it, and that was a compliment to the church, right? So same story. I'm sure Alistair McGrath and I could be like, yeah, here's how the doctrine of the Trinity developed, and here's how that's related to Greek philosophy. And I would be like, and that's why it's wrong. And he'd be like, oh, no, that's why it's right. Right. And so it, yeah, like, yeah. how do you how do you make how do you make a determination between those two points of view? It's uh, well, hmm. well, I, I don't know if um, if the Trinity is, is sort of just hatched out of Greek categories. I think it's more like um, these. Yeah. It depends also what your perspective is on first century, you know, on, on um, second temple Judaism. Like, is this right. just a completely Jewish thing or has it already been influenced by Greek categories? Right, you know, if right. you get into someone like the apostle Paul, he's quoting um, Greek philosophers. So, right. so, so what do you do with that? Just rip it out of your new Testament. Right. Right. <laughs> right. The, the, the Greek influence is there from the get go. Although, it, it does seem like the, the Trinitarian doctrinal development, although the, this, the funny thing is, is that it's just as true as the Arians too. The Arians and the Trinitarians were very influenced by Greek philosophy. And it's the biblical Unitarians that are trying to say, oh, we're not like the Arians or the Trinitarians. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, the, the Bible Project has this really good, and I, yeah, I wonder if you, the, the episodes on God, did you see that one? Yes, that, that's where he, he does like the two-dimensional, three-dimensional thing where there's this three-dimensional shape interacting with like the two-dimensional. Oh, that's just a video. Uh -huh. They have like a 20-part podcast on, the, on God. A 20-part podcast. I have not listened to that. No. <laughs> you would be interested. Like they I really dig into the, into the Jewish Old Testament. I can run you through that a bit if you're interested. Sure, go for um, it. Go for it. Because yeah, you'd probably appreciate this because you you're obviously someone who's as a biblical you're in tenor, you're really interested in what the Bible has to say. Um, so so they sort of make the argument that already within the Old Testament, 
you have this portrait of a god of god who's um who's sort of complex complex he has these um these attributes such as um wisdom would be one example which are in some sense god but in some sense distinct from god and then you have um instances like the burning bush where the burning bush is god but it's distinct from god or the angel of the lord is god but it's distinct from god so you have this complex portrait of god where he's um he's he's complex um it's sort of it's it's not quite they would argue it's 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 not quite as simple as just um monotheism there's Mm -hmm. there's something else going on there in the portrait um and then you have the category of the son of man from from daniel where oh this gets this gets complicated (laughs) um where the son of man is this exalted human figure exalted to the to the to the throne of the the throne next to the ancient of days um and you know when jesus comes along he starts to declare that he is the son of man and apparently you know this people often sort of you know jesus refers to himself as the son of god and the son of man and people often think you know the son of god is the more um it's the more godly uh, yeah. way of describing Exalted. himself but yeah yeah he, well they think yo know, he, he called himself the son of god that must mean he's saying he's god but they actually make the claim that it's actually the son of man category that's more exalted because um oh man I'm because he comes on the clouds of heaven yeah well he's he's exalted to the right hand of of god mm-hmm. hold on i have some notes here um just a second uh, do, do you, are you tracking with this at all or um yeah is, or yeah. is this all new stuff to you um, um doubt it. there's a little bit of both keep going um Okay, here it is. Um, I guess I guess part of what's going on with the Son of Man is that um, it's also connected to this idea of humans made in the image of God, um, where part of what the image of God is 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 it's a vocation, where humans are called to be the divine image bearers in God's creation, mm-hmm. and so what you see in the fall is humans. Um, you know, failing that vocation, essentially. And then you have these biblical figures like Moses, David, um, and others who sort of come very close to to fulfilling this divine image mm-hmm. and re- re- right, representing like God. God even says that I will make you God to Pharaoh, to Moses, right? Exactly. Yeah. They actually make the claim that... Um, there's this similar dynamic going on with with these figures like Moses, especially, where he's so closely identified with God that it's often hard to know what God is doing and what Moses is doing. Right, right, right. Um, and then Moses, you know, with the Sinai story, where Moses enters in, you know, God says he's going to destroy the people, but then Moses um, Moses stops him, like he reasons with God. It sort of so he enters into the divine dialogue. You know, you can just see the Trinitarian stuff going on. Well, you know, me reading Trinitarian stuff may be into this, but 
Moses sort of entering into the divine dialogue and um, calling off the destruction. And then, you know, Moses' face starts to glow. So, so Moses is probably the figure in the Old Testament that comes closest to being the image of God, but he also falls short. And this is where you get the category of the son of man, which is this exalted human up to the, up to the, exalted up to the right hand of God. So this is a human being who, oh man, this is complicated. This is complicated, yeah. And and David gets called God a couple times too, which is which is weird. Or the Davidic king will get called God. You know, like your throne, O God, lasts forever. Therefore, God, your God, has highly exalted you. Right. So it's like. It's or the um, or the the Lord said to my Lord. Um, yes. Is that another one that comes to mind? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and then also the the judges um, get called God. Right, John or Jesus quotes that passage in John chapter ten. Right, he says, "You know, it was okay for the judges back in those days to those to whom the word of God came were called gods." Right, so there's this there's this weird sense in which the word God can sometimes be applied to humans in a way that is apparently not blasphemous, but mm-hmm. it, but I don't think it's like. It's not like one. To, it's not like saying Moses joined the Trinity or something like that, or, or that King David <laughs> yeah. is unsubstantial yeah. with the Father or something like that. But it's it's like there's some unique sense in which they, at least at that time, are specially embodying what God is doing, right? or God is working through them in some kind of special and unique sense. Yeah. Um... Um, yeah, it, um, what was I going to say? I don't know. I could. Son of man, um, David, or Daniel. Yeah, um, 